First, though, are we vaccinating using the best possible method? In BC, as you know, the health officials, those in charge, have decided to go by age group. Well, some new modeling information suggests there could be other ways to do that. Caroline Colleen is an SFU professor in Canada, 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health, and joins me now to talk more about that. Thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. Uh, talk a bit, if you can. This is some new research. We're looking at treatment at vaccine schedules for COVID-19 and the idea of where BC has gone the route of really putting it in age groups. So you've done some research that looks at other possibilities. Exactly. Yeah, this is, um, first I should say, not just for BC, I think relevant across a lot of jurisdictions that are kind of like BC. Um, and what we've done is use new data on how well the vaccines are doing at preventing infection and preventing transmission. And then roll that out to see how that could make a difference uh, if we vaccinate people who are not just people who are vulnerable for a severe outcome if they get exposed, but people who are actually vulnerable to being exposed in the first place and then to transmitting to others. And we find that that can have a huge benefit. And so we would be talking about much younger groups and people who, say, work in positions where they're, uh, maybe they work in long-term care or, say, work in grocery stores or work in places where, where they are going to be uh, workers that are exposed to other people. Yeah, exactly. These are people who have to have contact for their work, um, who can't work at home on their laptop or otherwise, you know, completely socially distanced because they have to work. And when they work, they have to work with lots of other people and have high contact. Exactly. And I know you've done modeling and looked at this. So can you give an example if we did start vaccinating that group? How, do you know then uh, if somebody then stopped transmission, do, do you have an idea as far as the numbers as what kind of a result that would have? Yeah. So, of course, it depends what you assume is happening in the background. But um, if you think that, you know, we're going to reopen eventually or maybe we unfortunately have higher transmission variants that come in, actually preventing transmission would allow us to reopen uh, without causing, say, 200,000 or 100,000 more infections. We could save hundreds of deaths and we could actually save hundreds of millions of dollars in this net monetary benefit, which kind of tries to pull together all the costs, the healthcare costs and other costs associated with having a pandemic. So it's really a huge advantage. It would allow us to reopen. It would allow us to be resilient to higher transmission variants if we can stop transmission uh, by protecting people who are have high contact and thereby protecting everybody else too. So it's not about protecting them. Instead, it's about protecting them to protect everyone. Do we know then, because we do get the the alerts when there's been an exposure, say, at a grocery store or at a fast food restaurant or, or a restaurant, another facility that's open, um, do we know what, what the risk is or what the number is? If we have an exposure, we have a person working in this position, and, and with contact tracing or with, with what we do when we know about that, do we know how many people are potentially being infected by that one person? So we... Um Sometimes we have some of those data. Fraser Health put out some really nice infographics and illustrations of outbreaks. They were more around social activities because that's what we were asking people not to do. So there were weddings and things, but they'd have, you know, there were 50 people here and then 15 of those got exposed. We did hear from Dr. Henry that 40% of the cases were around social activities. And I think that leaves 60% uh, to be probably largely in workplaces. So I think it is quite a number. 
Uh, in Toronto, there's a great paper out describing um, COVID and essential workers, and they're risking exposure and having COVID at three times the rate of others and having an elevated death rate. I think it was about two and a half times uh, the death rate. So these are people that we are asking to take a risk for themselves, but people who also, we by protecting them, we can protect others as well. So you get a kind of double benefit that way. Right, because if we look at how we've responded to this pandemic, and if we're looking specifically, say, at long-term care, we know that even with drastic measures of stopping visitation, of doing single-site working, the virus was still getting into these facilities, and people who were the most vulnerable were still dying. Uh, At yesterday's briefing, we heard that there were no deaths, there had been no deaths recorded in long-term care, and the outbreaks over, which show that that vaccination then is working. Uh, Do you think then, could we shift, once we have have long-term care, which it looks like we've got most of long-term care with at least one dose, could we then shift to a vaccination program like this? Or is it does it have to be one or the other? So I think it's great we started with long-term care. As you said, we were not able to protect long-term care settings from exposures. Uh, and so it's absolutely, it was essential that we vaccinate those groups first. I think we should certainly continue with essential workers who are working in long-term care, all of them, not, not um, only some. Because, so I think that's great and we should, we should prioritize that and we did and, and totally support that. I think now after our most vulnerable are vaccinated, the very most, we actually do see in the modeling that we get more benefit, even for protecting the vulnerable by preventing transmission in the whole population, by preventing it among people with high contact. So I think it, it is now time to start thinking about how we would identify, you know, who, who's essential. Um, and that's we broadly defined it as people who have to have lots of contact for work. So if there's a sector that we need to have open, that we want people working in, and that involves people having high contact, those people um, will get this benefit from vaccinating those people. Uh, so if someone's listening to this and is thinking, OK, well, I have elderly parents that live at home. They're still very functioning and they go to the grocery store. Uh, they do their essentials shopping and, and they are out in the community. Is it better? Do we know then if it would be better to wait and wait until they get their vaccine? Is that the best course to see to keep them safe? Or is it better that when they go to that grocery store, if the clerk has been vaccinated, that's the best way to keep them safe? Right, exactly. So in our modeling It's the second one. And it it feels counterintuitive, right? Because you think, oh, the risk is so high, we should vaccinate the people with high risk. That's totally right if everybody gets exposed. But if not everybody gets exposed and you can say, let's make sure that, that, you know, I have elderly parents, too, that, that when they go out, the people that they see that there's basically no COVID around, that's great. That's great for everyone. It's great for the long term consequences. It's great for the cost. But it's also even great for um, the elderly. And I think we should also remember that the vaccines, they're great. We're getting great data about how wonderful they are. They're super, but they're not completely perfect. And not everyone wants to get vaccinated. So if you had, let's say, 10 or 20 percent of your elderly population that are not protected, either because they declined the vaccine or because for some reason it had limited limited effectiveness in, in those individuals, we're also protecting them, too, if we reduce the amount of COVID around in the general population. So I think those are some of the things that we're able to take into account with modeling those indirect effects that you can't just run an experiment and say, let's have two populations and in one we're going to do this for the next nine months and then we'll know what to do for the next nine months. We only have this next nine months once 
And I think we should be using the vaccines as strategically as we can, especially since at the moment we don't have enough of them to vaccinate everyone right away. And looking at your research, and you kind of touched on this already, but the simulations that you did found that vaccinating essential workers early rather than the population in decreasing order of age uh, would lead to 200,000 fewer infections, 600 fewer deaths, and 230 million in healthcare costs. How did you come up with those numbers? Right. So we compared uh, oldest first vaccination to a vaccination program that has essential workers after 80 plus. So we finish 80 and then 80 plus, and then we go with essential workers, and then we roll out a range of other orderings. And those orderings didn't actually differ that much. So whether you go 80 plus essential workers, 70 to 79, and then everyone else, or 70 to 79, and then 60, and then 50, or, you know, the other orderings didn't make a huge difference in the model, so we couldn't really distinguish. What made a huge difference was whether essential workers were prioritized soon. So then we used the model to simulate how many infections we would have under the different strategies. And we looked at how many hospitalizations and how many deaths and how many cases of long COVID and chronic impacts, which is another important piece that I think is is not discussed enough. Uh, And then we looked at um, the costs associated with those and then just compared the two strategies. I should say that's under an assumption where we do want to do some reopening before September so we don't sort of just stay locked down or, or shut down in the way that we are, or or if we have increased transmission due to variants of concern. So the, the sort of underlying transmission is, is more like what we had in the fall than like what we have now, although things are starting to rise again now. So, so that's how we did it. Right. And just uh, one more question with it seems uh, that uh, those making decisions are unlikely to change the course of action when it comes to the uh, decreasing order of age vaccination program. But do you think it could change? What would it take? Would it take uh, wide more transmission or would there be something that would perhaps trigger that kind of change? So I think uh, the conversation with the National Committee on Immunization is really important because they are um, setting setting guidelines for Canadian jurisdictions. They have mentioned frontline and essential workers in stages two and three of their recommendations. Dr. Henry did leave room for, you know, listening to the science. And I think now that we know really what's changing here is not, you know, that I did some modeling or my colleagues did some modeling. There are many models showing similar things. The science paper by Kate Bubar and co-authors from which we took our model would say the same thing for a Canadian context, the same model. The public health agencies models say the same thing. What's changing is we're learning more about how great the vaccines are at stopping transmission. So I think there is room for for this conversation to change uh, as that new information comes out about how effective it's going to be to be able to do this. All right, Uh, Caroline, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. No, we talked about this earlier in the week. The ambulance paramedics of BC put out some information about the wait times this past weekend, saying on Friday night and during a 24-hour period, there were times when urgent ambulance calls, the wait could be up to an hour, saying there were 29 ambulances that were parked because there was no staff. Uh, they are raising concerns about a shortage of paramedics and saying that the call load certainly isn't going down. Here's just part of what Troy Clifford the president of the ambulance paramedics of BC said about that. So how it works, yeah. So uh, there was up to, because of the shortages of ambulances, I'm advised by uh, paramedics and dispatchers that were working on the streets and that, that 
that uh, there was delays of emergency calls up to an hour. And yes, the first responders uh, assist us and, and that, but that doesn't alleviate the need for the, uh, intervention by paramedics and trans- treatment and transport to hospitals. And that's what our primary role is. So that adds to the fatigue for the paramedics, uh, you know, the stress that that puts on them on an already stressful job and, and the first responders. Uh, we reached out to BC Emergency Health Services as well to find out a bit more about this. And in a statement that was released about the waits this past weekend, uh, they said that in that 24-hour period, there were more than 120 calls for overdoses and that during the entire opioid crisis to this point, that has only happened four times before. We wanted to reach out to Sarah Blythe, Executive Director of the Overdose Prevention Society, to talk more about this. And Sarah is on the line with us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, yeah, uh, I I empathize with uh, the ambulance uh, folks. Uh, For one, I live on the unit block, which is the the um, the most like uh, ambulance calls come to this block in all of Canada and also in the um, in the alleyway. Um, And also uh, the overdose prevention site is on this block as well. So um, I'm hearing it all night long, uh, more than ever, and I'm also um, I'm also hearing, um, you know, we're also seeing it uh, at the overdose prevention site with the amount of overdoses going up. Um, so it's just it's a really tough time, and uh, and overdoses continue to to happen at, at an alarming rate, and uh, a lot of the times uh, they don't leave with the, when they come to an overdose prevention site. People don't have to leave with the ambulance. Uh, driver, um, they stay with us and we, we deal with it on site, I would say 90% of the time. It's just that they come um, to the site and, you know, offer their assistance. But with, with where there's places that aren't having overdose prevention sites, uh, the ambulances are dealing with it alone. And it's, uh, it's, it's just nonstop. I mean, it's like the ambulance are going nonstop. Right. Uh, and you kind of have answered my question because I was curious about that, thinking about uh, the site that, that you run, the Overdose Prevention Society. If someone overdoses or, or if they overdose, say, uh, at, at Insight, is that an automatic call to an ambulance or are there people with naloxone and people on site who can, can deal with that? We always call the ambulance just in case um, because sometimes the, it can be more complicated than just an overdose. So we always want an ambulance, you know, an ambulance to come, paramedics to come and check it out to make sure everything's okay. Um, but it's not necessarily, you know, I would say 90% of the time they stay with us. And, uh, but still they, they have to come out and, and help us. I mean, really at the end of the day, again, we need to make sure that folks are um, getting safe supply of something that they know what they're taking and, and they're not taking something that's toxic. And also, um, you know, like even including having, better facility at ops to be able to deal with an overdose and make sure that the, the folks have a place to, to, to hang out post overdose so that it's um, so that the ambulance just come and go pretty quickly. So I think um, there's things that can be done to make it easier, but at the same time um, I, I can, you know, I can see that it's happening all night long. I can hear ambulances from my apartment all night long and then all day long we're calling ambulances. So um, I, and it's really not a shock to me that this is happening. And uh, in places where there aren't overdose prevention sites, it's got to be worse because the ambulances are dealing with it all on their own. And, and then they do have to take people to the hospital. 
um, and they have to, you know, they won't have someone um, dealing with the, the Narcan and, and, and just on the spot helping someone. So it's going to be challenging in other parts of BC, more challenging than it is even here. So, uh, yeah, it's tough. It's really tough times. Um, and there's a lot more homeless folks and, and a lot of more uh, poverty happening that I, that I can see. Um, and, uh, and that's really affecting everything. So, um, it's, it's pretty depressing yeah. to be honest. Yeah, no. And, yeah. and I, I'm guessing just also listening to how you're describing it, that that number, even though according to emergency health services, having more than 120 overdose calls in one 24 hour period has only happened a few other times during this entire crisis. That probably doesn't come as a huge surprise to you. No, I can hear ambulances going nonstop uh, in the downtown east side, where both at night where I live, and then also uh, where our overdose prevention site is, and and actually in the calls that we're making to the ambulances ourselves, um, um, requiring them to come and check on people. And I, you know, now that you know, um, is just you know, it used to be just concentrated you know, in, in Vancouver, but it's now across BC and across Canada and the more contaminated supply. So, um, you know, you're seeing more overdoses and with the benzos uh, as well added to that just creates a more complex overdose um, and and more lethal sometimes. So it's just from, from bad to worse. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we can do about it. Uh, we're cer- certainly not doing as much as we are for COVID and more people are dying. So, um, I think it's time to, you know, just step it up because there's got to be some end to it and there's got to be some relief for the, 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 you know, I see them in the streets, they're doing really good work and it's really, really tough because it's one uh, overdose and near-death response after another and it, it can really take a toll on, on anyone, really. And I, can, and I can imagine that they, you know, they come in uh, and see uh, people who have passed on uh, quite frequently, it's it's really a tragedy in in a way that I don't even think that uh, the general public really understands because like there's a lot of so much focus on COVID, right? Um, but we're losing so many people, um, and and some of them are are folks that that you know use drugs not uh, you know not that frequently, um, but if you use fentanyl not that frequently you're more actually likely to overdose and die just because you're not you're not used to such a high potency that your your system hasn't gotten used to it. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of one-time users dying that way, which comes as a shock to, you know, families who didn't even know that uh their 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 uh young um youth was using it all. So, uh it's just it's uh it's just a tragedy really. Uh, you talk too about yeah, it's got to have a huge uh, mental health factor on, on people as well. Not only the people that that are in this position of overdosing, but also people like yourself and people who are responding uh, to these every every day. What's something when you say we're not? There are things we could do, more we could do, and it's not being done. Is there one thing that could be done right away, or what would you suggest could be done? Uh, what action could be taken to help with this? Well, for one, more overdose prevention sites, because where we have overdose prevention sites, um, you know, we're able to deal with people who are overdosing really quickly 
And um, the quicker you deal with it, you know, if people are using on a site with with folks like me who know how to handle an overdose and and help a person, um, then they're less likely to go to the hospital because as time goes by, you know, when you're not breathing, um, you know, things are worse and they end up in the hospital, they end up going in an ambulance. So um, overdose prevention sites are key, but also safe supply. I mean, that's just, you know, uh, safe supply, making sure that people have access to something that's, you know, from their doctors and nurses, um, that is something that's not going to kill them. They know what they're taking and uh, isn't as, as risky uh, of a situation. Um, and, uh, and and making sure that those programs are, are um, uh, ramped up as soon as possible. And also, you know, at overdose prevention sites, just having a place like respite area for people to be able to, after they've overdosed, be able to um, rest because uh, some of the overdoses with benzos can last all day long. So um, it's it's quite complicated. Also, and housing and, and, and a lot of the things that people need uh, that they're not they're not uh, they're not getting, which you know, sleeping outside in uh, below zero or freezing cold temperatures just creates more uh, issues for folks and uh, more despair. Um, which can lead to uh, more drug use and more dangerous drug use. So I just think, uh, you know, there's a lot that can be done. One of it, you know, one of the things is just really focusing on the issue and taking it seriously and doing a lot, especially at the federal level. It seems like the province and the, the, uh, the city are doing, you know, doing a lot of, you know, they're trying their best, but they need the, the federal government also to really step up as well. All right. Well, Sarah, we'll continue uh, following this and talking about this, but we'll have to leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining the show. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Well, we have some new information on where the housing is going to be put in place, where the beds are going to be found when it comes to housing people who are currently living in Strathcona Park and other homeless people as well. You might recall there was a list of potential sites that was released a few weeks ago. And one of the sites that was getting a lot of attention was the Jericho Hostel. And that's a site that's empty. A lot of people saying, yeah, that makes sense. No one's using it. It's just sitting there. Why not convert that into into housing. Well, those plans have been abandoned, but the people making those decisions, the city of Vancouver, BC Housing, the BC government say it is not because there was resistance from residents in that wealthy West Point Gray area. It was more because there simply aren't services available and it's not a good fit. Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this and the bigger issue is Jamie McLaren, a resident of Strathcona, also a social justice lawyer. Jamie, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. Good afternoon. Uh, What are your thoughts uh, after learning that uh, there are a couple of sites we now know about, the old Army and Navy store, uh, one of those, but that the Jericho Hostel idea has been taken off the table? Yeah, well, initially very pleased that there's 120 new shelter spaces being uh, set up um, proximate or close to Strathcona Parks for for, uh, current residents of the park. And so that's good news, certainly. Um, disappointing on, on some level that they're they continue to be, you know, um, all focused and located near the downtown east side or Strathcona. Um, it seems like that's been the, the pattern for, for decades uh, in terms of where social housing is located. Um, but very disappointed that the uh, Jericho Hostel has been taken out of the, 
out of the picture as a potential shelter location. It had, um, I think, 285 beds uh, available um, for for youth, and, and it stands empty currently. And, and it makes you wonder why they don't um, use it for for um, shelter purposes. It, you know, it doesn't need to be for high needs um, uh, residents uh, of the sort that that um, that live in Strathcona Park currently. Um, it could be others. And if those others move into Jericho Hostel, then they would vacate spaces that could be used for, for um, Strathcona Park campers. So it's, you know, really disappointing. You know, it's hard not to be cynical about, about why they made that decision. They, they say that the lack of services around there. Well, that's certainly true, but the services are located where government places them. And so this is an opportunity to, um, to spread the... Um, spread this support for unsheltered people around the city because uh, currently it's being carried um, by, by the east side in a disproportionate fashion. Uh, do you get the sense, and I know that, that you being a Strathcona resident, you do have contact with people who are living in the park and people who are homeless. Do you get the sense or have you had any type of conversations on whether or not people would be open to going, say, to the hostel or to a place that is in a completely different neighbourhood and really isn't near services? Well, yeah, I, I have had those conversations before and there's um, you know there's some unhoused people who have... Um, you know, have less needs than others in terms of the support services they require to to uh, get by and and lead productive lives. And and someone in recovery may wish to you know be located not so close to the downtown east side with all the various temptations and pressures that that area comes with. You know, so it's there's a, a real diversity of needs and, and and types of people who are unhoused currently. And there's a a sizable unhoused population in Kitsilano and in the Point Grey area, and um, you know Jericho would be would be very suitable, I would think, for for many unhoused people. Um, not necessarily the the folks that are in Strathcona Park right now, but but many others. And so, you know, that would you know if they went there, then they could potentially um, you know uh, leave more space for for other unhoused residents in other places, including the downtown east side. But it's just unfortunate that, again, um, the east side is is the focus of, of all the attention and um, investment, the limited investment in shelter spaces in Vancouver. Uh, yeah, it is. It is one uh, that, that you look at, and, and certainly anybody that's on the west side, it's not as though, like you say, there's there are no homeless people there. You don't have to really search all that much to find people that are unhoused. I mean, there are people that have been living in RVs along Fourth Avenue for years. So whether or not they want to move in uh, to a place like the hostel or they want housing, uh, it would be, I guess, uh, another question. Uh, but it does seem like so much of it is concentrated uh, in Strathcona. Uh, I know I heard David Eby talking about this as. Well well, saying that one of the, the issues, too, is as they start moving people out, there are likely going to be more people coming that would want that that know that spaces are becoming available and that they're there to, to get these shelter spaces and these beds. Are you concerned that they might not meet the end of April deadline? Oh, absolutely concerned. You know, they haven't shown a good track record for meeting deadlines so far. And certainly all the indications and, you know, I'm not going to say promises, but all the um, the clues they drop about shelter spaces opening they've they haven't met you know the Jericho and Kingsway were were presented as very real and achievable options uh, several months ago and now you know one is gone and the other I think is you know being looked at uh, closely so yeah it's um, 
you know, based on, on the past experience, very concerned that they won't meet that, that deadline. So um, hopefully they will. And, um, you know, uh, and the weather gets nicer in, in the beginning of, of May at the end of April. Um, so that brings both challenges and, and opportunities, I guess, from the perspective of people who are unhoused. But, um, yeah, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if they can meet that deadline. I should say that you know the the one thing that's been very positive lately is that the park board has succeeded in in clearing the west side of Strathcona Park and did so in a in a very kind of uh, humane and consultative fashion. So kudos to them for doing that. Um, it, it you know the the bigger challenge, of course, will be will be finding homes and for the uh, residents of the east side of the park, of which I think there are 200 to 250, and 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 decamping um, those who won't, uh, you know, avail themselves of, of available housing options. So that'll, that'll be the real challenge, and that, that challenge is coming, obviously. All right. Well, I'm sure we will talk with you uh, about this again. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for being with us. Incredibly patronizing words from the mayor of Port Coquitlam talking about Fraser Health and how parents are getting information about COVID-19 exposures. And joining us with that story is our show contributor, John Jang. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. Earlier this morning on the Mike Smith Show, I spoke with Nicole Collins, the mother of a student attending Castle Park Elementary in Port Coquitlam. That school has had a recent COVID-19 exposure, and she had some very strong words for health officials regarding the lack of transparency when notifying families about COVID-19 exposures in their schools. Quite simply, you're failing our children. The system you have in place nearly a year into the pandemic is grossly flawed. There are huge delays. There is complete inaccuracy in notification and isolation letters. This is not unique to my child's school. We're actually incredibly lucky that this is the first time we're experiencing this here. I have heard horror stories. If you want to be the entity controlling the information, then you need to be able to deliver. We expect accurate reporting in our schools. We expect timely communication. We expect you to treat us like competent adults and allow us to decide what is safe for our families. Quite simply, you get a failing grade. We are now joined by the mayor of Port Coquitlam, Brad West. Mayor, appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. And obviously, when you're listening to that clip, it's clear that Nicole is frustrated with how these notifications are being handled with the lack of transparency. And I know that she's not the only parent who feels this way. Yeah, that's right. I've had a number of parents in Port Coquitlam reach out to me and and when they do, it, it's sort of out of desperation because they know that uh, this isn't an area that the mayor has any jurisdiction over, but uh, they don't know where else to turn to. And so people have come to me, and, and it's part of my job as mayor to advocate on behalf of my residents and you know do whatever I can to bring attention to an issue that's causing a lot of concern. And, and I can understand why it's causing concern for parents in Port Coquitlam. I'm a parent myself, and uh, my son's in, in daycare. He's not in elementary school, but I, I can appreciate exactly where people are coming from. We have a situation where we have a system that has been set up and designed to be able to provide timely notification to parents when there are confirmed cases of COVID in schools, but there is such a, a lag in that notification that what is happening is parents are finding out from other parents. 
or they're finding out from uh, a, a teacher who gets permission from a parent of a child who has COVID uh, that they can share that information. And so the system is certainly, from my perspective and the stories I've heard from parents in my community, not working the way it should. And you can imagine, put yourself in the shoes of, uh, of a parent, you're, you're waiting to hear the official word from Fraser Health that there has been a COVID case in your child's classroom, but you're hearing it days earlier from a parent, and then you're, you're left in this limbo of trying to figure out what you should do. And of course, what the vast majority of parents are doing is when they hear from another parent, they're, they're pulling their child out of the school. But it's not the case that every time a parent is going to tell the school that their their child has COVID-19 because it's actually not the way the system is set up. system is set up that Fraser Health is supposed to do that. And so I'm using my voice as mayor to try and draw attention to this concern that parents have and do whatever I can to ask uh, our provincial authorities, our health authorities, uh, to very urgently examine the way the system is working and rather than just have a knee-jerk defense of it and say no no it, it we have it set up the right way uh, actually look at how it's operating I'm not questioning you know the the hard work or the good intentions of the people who are at Fraser Health and are at the health authorities you know clearly they want to do this right but the reality of how it's operating is very different from how it's supposed to be operating. And so, again, I think anytime there's an issue like that, our job as as elected officials, as people in the public service, isn't to patronize and pat parents on the head and tell them, hey, no problem, don't worry about it, it's all looked after. It's to face up to the reality of what is going on and, and fix it. And from the conversations I've had thus far, it seems there's a lot of energy spent defending the way the system has been set up and not enough energy being put to listening to the concerns of parents and making adjustments. It doesn't need to be anybody's fault, but we do need to take action to fix what is clearly an issue in Port Coquitlam and I suspect in many other communities in the province. How concerning is it to you when you hear something that Nicole shared with me, that in communications with Fraser Health asking, why did parents only receive the two notification letters when we know there were multiple individuals with the virus? In the response from Fraser Health, they're quoted as saying, parents would find it too confusing if they issued multiple letters. Yeah, it's never appropriate to treat people like idiots or to treat people like they're too stupid to be able to figure it out, or that they're too immature to receive the information. Uh, I mean, that's just an incredibly patronizing, wrong-headed approach for any public agency, any level of government to be taking with our citizens. And so it's absolutely essential that people have the information in a timely and transparent way so that they can make the decisions that are in the best interests of protecting the health of their family, particularly of of their children. And again, to any parent out there who's listening, 
I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these prints. They're not asking for too much. It's a very reasonable thing to be asking, and our system should be able to deliver it. And before we let you go, Mayor, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today, even though, as you mentioned, it's not your jurisdiction where the mayor's office would be directly involved, are there plans to maybe sit down with officials from Fraser Health to try and express these concerns shared to you? Or has there been any communication in recent days regarding this situation? The, the city has been sharing these concerns that we've heard from parents in our community with Fraser Health. Uh, I'll be speaking to our MLA, sharing those concerns as well. And, you know, again, although it's not our responsibility and we're not in a place where we have the power or the jurisdiction to be able to make the changes, we certainly have a voice and we're going to use that voice on behalf of our residents and our parents to to do what we can to try and bring about some change here. And again, this is not a, it's not a, an attempt to try and lay blame or find fault. It is squaring up to the reality of how the system is not working the way it should and addressing that and fixing it so that parents and families in this community and in every community can have the confidence uh, that they need when making decisions to do with the health of their children. And again, from my perspective, that ain't too much to ask. That's a pretty basic thing that, again, our system should be able to deliver. He is Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, where we know over 40% of schools in that district have had COVID-19 exposures in recent days. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being with us. All right, this next story I know is going to generate a lot of calls. Talking about a high school secondary student called out of class by her teacher on Tuesday, sent to the principal's outfit because of her outfit, told that she was making her teacher and another student teacher feel uncomfortable. Sent to the principal's office and then offered the opportunity to go home, choose a different outfit and return to school. Well, her father, Karis Wilson's father, is joining us on the line now. Chris Wilson is with us. Thank you so much for joining the program. My pleasure. Uh, I know you have. You talked to your daughter. I looked at uh, a post you did earlier. You talked to your daughter to make sure that it was okay that uh, you went public and talked about this. Uh, what happened? Uh, it, it it just kind of seemed like something out of a movie. This isn't something that, you know, you, you would expect to hit this close to home. Uh, you know, I mentioned in my video that, you know, we've all seen things like this happen in the past and, you know, hopefully, you know, we're past that. And we live in Canada and a free country and these kinds of challenges shouldn't present themselves and they shouldn't hit that home, hit, hit that close to home. What was your daughter wearing? Uh, she was wearing a, a dress and a white turtleneck underneath it uh and it not that it should matter but she typically would wear track pants and a hoodie and, and wear comfortable clothes uh she had recently hurt her knee snowboarding and was at the gym trying to get going again and uh felt good about herself and for one day put on a dress and you know looked in the mirror and said i look appropriate i look pretty and i feel great and that's not the message she got from the school uh, no, not at all. And just to, in case people are running, so so she's wearing a white turtleneck. I'm looking at, at the photo. She's wearing a white turtleneck sweater. She's got this black dress over top of it. It goes down uh, pretty much to the knee. It's got a bit of a lace trim on the black dress, and that's it. It's it's actually a pretty plain outfit when, when you look at this. But the fact that she then got sent to the principal's office. Uh, so who actually made the complaint? 
So I, I'm not aware. All I know is that the, the teacher said to her that it, it could cause uh, the male teacher to feel uncomfortable. So I don't know that he made a complaint by any means, uh, but I do know she used him as an excuse and it could make her feel uncomfortable because uh, she, she felt that it, uh, it looked like a, a slip. And, you know, there, there are people online that had mentioned, you know, this does look, it is a dress. Uh, it was sold as a dress. It was worn as a dress just because something has lace on it doesn't make it a slip. Uh, but regardless, you know, she was completely covered. So I don't know why the, the challenge. Uh, you went and spoke, I, I think, um, and again, I listened to the, to the post, the video that you posted, that you went and talked to, I think it was the principal. Uh, you got them to bring out the dress code. So what is the dress code at that school? Uh the first three seemed reasonable. Uh, I, I think it was, you know, no swear words, no clothing with uh, nudity, uh, alcohol, firearms, tobacco, uh, or hate towards any group. And that, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was the, the fourth line that she showed me that was fairly ambiguous, which basically just said anything that uh, detracts from teaching or can distract a teacher or students from learning. Uh, and I said, wow, so who makes that call? And right away, she realized where the conversation was going and just I, I uh, uh, didn't really have an answer to it. Although we all know it's up to the teacher's discretion of what they feel uh, makes a, a young lady uncomfortable, an unreasonable outfit. So, uh, How is your daughter doing? Right now, she's doing well. Uh, she went home in tears. She was, uh, you know, she felt broken. She felt kind of ashamed. She was shamed into thinking that what she had done was wrong for the wrong reasons and you know i assure you she was she was just feeling good about herself this is a 17 year old girl who wanted to go to school had a rough semester because of covid where you have one class and they're they're condensed semesters so she's finally back to two full-time classes and felt good about being back to school and and dressed to impress and uh yeah impress wasn't the the word as her father as a father uh, as somebody who with the rest of us lives in the year 2021 what is your response that here we have a high school student a, a young woman being sent home because her dress the way she's dressed is is potentially making a male person at the school feel uncomfortable oh yeah every father uh, you know you'd like to think that every father's biggest fear is is having your daughter's heart broke or going through some of these challenges and it's just one of those things where you know there's things that she's going to deal with in her life that might break her heart that I won't be able to fix and that is the most terrifying feeling in the world Uh, but when this happened it it was heartbreaking but this is something that needs to and can be fixed. Um, there was sense that you went public with this and sense that this is getting a lot of attention. The school district, which is the Kamloops Thompson School District, has issued a statement saying they're aware of an incident regarding a grade 12 student and dress code at Norcam Secondary. Uh, they say, we understand the parent is concerned about what happened to his daughter at school. We are also concerned about these allegations and we are treating them seriously. The incident is currently under review. We will not comment on the incident specifically. What do you say to that response from the school district it's very strategic this is a pr nightmare they can't say a single thing about this event without getting destroyed the public is fully behind her uh it's 2021 it's time to change Uh, my conversations with the principal uh, he alluded to the fact that they're aware that their current dress code and they've been informed by their legal team prior to this that it's a that it's a potential nightmare 
So they're aware of this, and they were taking steps to move forward and change it. And I think the biggest challenge we're facing right now is when an organization is aware that something that they're doing is wrong, uh, it can hurt people and potentially put them in a legal hotspot. They made a plan to deal with it in the future, as opposed to this is an issue. Let's deal with this right now before it happens to someone else. And it just happened to happen to someone else before this got changed, adjusted, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it's just the whole thing is just awful. And I, I, I mean, I'm so glad when you say your daughter what, that Karis is doing okay now, because I, I mean, there's a lot going on when you not only now, I mean, is she going to go back to school and think, well, who's judging my outfit? What, what are people looking at the way I'm dressed? I mean, you send someone home for the way they're dressed when there was nothing wrong with the way she was dressed. That can be absolutely devastating. That's devastating to me. I tried three outfits on today. I didn't know what to wear. Like. You know, people are out there judging what you wear and sexualizing you, and it's, I, it was, it's too much. But yeah, she, she is dealing with uh, the the fear of, you know what, geez, what do I put on now? Everyone's going to be looking at what I wear. Mm-hmm. You know, whether I wear track pants just because I want to be comfy, and are they thinking that I'm over... I don't know. Uh, So, yeah, your mind can go to some interesting places processing all this. Uh, You mentioned, and and I read as well, that uh, you're speaking partly because Karis was fine with you speaking, and she also wants to make sure this doesn't happen again. Uh, Is that your goal or your hope that maybe the dress code gets updated, joins us in 2021, and we can stop this kind of thing from happening again? Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of social uh, justice warriors out there. Uh, TikTok, the the video I made on TikTok blew up. I think it's over 400,000 views. And so many people on there are are frustrated and concerned. But there's also people attacking the teachers uh, and attacking. And they're they're in a situation where the teacher is doing as she's told. If she is within the rights of following the rules that were set out by the school district, then she hasn't really done anything. Although she has done something wrong, she's following the rules set out by her employer. So the challenge here is the dress code. It is SD73 getting into, you know, this century. Uh, I see that Chilliwack has made some adjustments. Someone shared with me SD33's uh, dress code, which has been completely updated and would be acceptable. And to me, that's very frustrating that you have uh, a sister district that's already figured this out. They've gone through all the research and said, hey, this is what we think is fair for all uh, and have publicly posted that. And why didn't SD73. Why didn't everyone just go, wow, yeah, instead of us worrying about the potential challenges, let's ad- adapt this and move forward. Uh, are you okay with the, the way the school has responded or the district has responded at this point, or, or do you plan on taking any further action against them? You know what, I just, we want change. This is, a, this is a teachable moment, and, you know, it really is something that, you know, teachers are humans too. The school board, everyone, we're all just humans, and we're trying to get through this, this thing called life. And, you know, not affect anyone negatively. I don't think that was the intent when they originally put this together. But, you know, it's sometimes that is the result regardless. All right. So, Chris, thanks for joining us on, on the program. I'm not surprised that the video that you put out is getting so much attention. I know a lot of people are talking about this. Thanks for bringing it to our attention and joining the show. You bet. I appreciate you. Thanks.